0: Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. In the last week of February this year, I spoke with Youneb Siddiqui, the chief executive officer at Jones the Grocer, a restaurant cafe that also houses a gourmet deli. Jones the Grocer was initially founded in Australia and UNib opened the first branch in Abu Dhabi in 2009 under a franchise model. It did exceptionally well and UNIB soon opened several outlets in the UAE but then followed years of legal complications with the original founder of Jones the Grocer, which prevented growth for the brand in the UAE at a time when competition stiffened. But Unib eventually bought out the original founder and now owns the rights to the brand. At the start of this year, he was gearing up for regional expansion, but then the coronavirus arrived in the Middle East, wreaking havoc on the food and beverage sector. Yet Jones the Grocer is still managing to survive, and in this podcast, Unib explains how, after more than a decade, he has managed to keep the brand relevant even in today's climate. This podcast was recorded in two parts, the first in a nice studio before lockdown and the second part over Zoom. And I must apologize for the sound quality of that one. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you.
0: Thank you for doing this podcast. We're really keen to find out more about Jones the Grocer. How did the story start?
1: Um, it started in sort of 2008. Um, I was just looking for stuff to do. I was running a business in the UK, uh, predominantly selling home interiors, accessories, um, buying in countries like, Af- well, not countries, continents like Africa. Um, and we uh, started off sort of buying from small producers, sort of microfinancing them, giving them cash up front, and putting all that product into a catalog and then setting the catalog, catalog out to retailers. And then retailers would then place orders with us. We'd have stock in the warehouse and so on and so on. But that started way back in 94. Um, when
0: entrepreneurs not, were still businessmen. Yeah,
1: 1994. Uh, and, and to be honest, the business did really, really well. But around sort of 2005, six, we were kind of, uh, you know, we had a choice to make. Whether we would go mass market or go down, uh, you know, the China route uh, or stay true to our kind of, ethically labeled, fairly traded, provenanced product. uh, And around the same time, a lot of the retailers got bought out by private equity. Mm -hmm. So the shelves started being regarded as something to be sold by square meter. The product lost interest. So it was all about revenue per square meter off the actual shelf. Uh, So buyers lost interest in the story of the product. They were just interested in maximizing profit Mm -hmm. and revenue. So, we ended up with a very small niche market retailers like, you know, Harrods and Suffrages. And, uh, and then I just thought it was like something to do. So, we actually sold what was left of that business. And then I stumbled across Jones the Gross on a trip to Vietnam where we had a small joint venture uh, in a bamboo production factory. Uh, and that's how I found Jones the Gross. I saw it in Singapore, the first store open. Uh, I loved it, and then I read about it in a magazine. It's an Australian okay. brand that opened its sort of first branch outside the Asia-Pacific, uh, sort of Australia-New Zealand region in Singapore, and it was like a wow experience mm-hmm. for me. Um, and, I, and I sort of looked at it, and I, and I read about it in this magazine. I saw the photos, saw the write-up, and I thought, this is what we gotta do. And actually, I, s- I wrote to the owner in those days by I sent him a fax. Uh, because he didn't seem to have an email address and he sort of said let's meet in Singapore So I flew to Singapore met the guy signed a deal for London uh, which I was even shocked that he actually agreed to so quickly uh, and then on the way back stopped in Dubai And a few friends said to me you need you've got to do this in Dubai like incredible This is going to do really well here and I and I could have thought about it My parents used to live in Abu Dhabi so I kind of knew the f- space but not very well uh, And I got back to London. I changed my mind and decided to do it in Dubai. And then, of course, it didn't happen in Dubai. It happened in Abu Dhabi, the first store, uh, the Al-Mamura building.
0: Because I, I experienced just the ghost first in um, Al-Manara.
1: Yeah, so I the first store was in Abu Dhabi in 2009. And, of course, th- my partners, the two guys who were supposed to invest with me from Dubai, pulled out saying, you know, D- Abu Dhabi is just not sexy enough.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: Dubai <laughs> is the place to be. And I, I sort of couldn't understand the reason. I told them that this building I'm going in is amazing. It's got good tenancy. Uh, the rent, the rent is good. Aldar, the landlord, had been very supportive, mm-hmm. uh, but they just weren't having it. So then I was left holding a, holding a basket for money, and so we ended up. You know, a friend of mine stepped in. He put in some debt. Uh, a good friend of mine from college, from university days, and so we managed to build that first store in Abu Dhabi.
0: How long did that whole process take? From the moment you decided to change your mind, and open in Dubai, to actually having the actually we
1: signed. So we we I decided to go ahead in April two thousand and eight. Okay. We signed in, uh, I think we signed a physical, a uh, heads of terms or what you would call a letter of intent uh, in sort of summer of 2008. Okay. We signed an agreement sort of a couple of months later and then these guys pulled out because I'd already signed the lease uh, in Mamura, uh, in Abu Dhabi. Okay. Uh, so then I, I'd actually paid money out, I'd paid the franchise or money as well. So I was kind of stuck uh, because I'd paid deposits on both sides and I, I actually had no other money.
0: Did you have an option just not to go through with it? Did that ever cross your no, mind? No, it never
1: crossed my mind. I just said, I'm going to do this. And so I went around trying to sort of raise money sort of, you know, on a, on a sort of uh, dog and you know, pony show. Was
0: it easy to raise money back then? No, it
1: was impossible. Because in this, in this market, Greenfield, raising money for Greenfield projects mm. is next to impossible. Everybody wants collateral. Everybody wants to know what land you have, what housing you have, what can you put down as a mortgage or uh, as, as collateral. And we, you know, I didn't have access to that kind of capital whatever I had, I had a house in London, which I sold. Okay. Uh, so that was gonna be part of the capital. Uh, so we sort of, you know, it was it was pretty a huge doing, risk. Yeah, it was just a, it was actually a typical, uh, you know, typical scratch startup from sort of what you'd see typically in, in the sort of that side of the world.
0: And it did well, you had uh, royalty visiting.
1: Yeah, so, so we opened up first day and it was, we were packed. We had to actually close the kitchen early. Um, we, I did a business plan and we were actually weirdly on target on the first day from day one, uh, and then we exceeded that, and then we ended up in a situation where we had to actually close the kitchen early, nearly every, every day of the week, wow. um, because we just run out of stuff. I was driving around my car to Lulu and to Spinney's, trying to buy stuff, get gas cylinders. I had no idea how to open accounts with people. Nobody would give me credit, so everything was on cash. Uh, it was like a complete nightmare, and we, I had to actually do everything. We, we, I was running the kitchen, the dishes, I was opening the store. I was dry. I used to live in Dubai because my kids couldn't get into school in Abu Dhabi, so everything was like a nightmare. But it was fun. It was fun.
0: So how long did it take before you found your feet?
1: So I think after the first four months, um, things started to settle down. We had we had some hiccups with our local sponsor. We got over that. We we then um, sort of started getting lots of lease offers from different locations. I then went back to the original, f- original sort of um, debt provider, my shareholder, mm-hmm. and I said, listen, we need more money, we're gonna grow this thing. So we ended up actually signing four or five leases, okay. pretty much straight away. Okay. Uh, and we started putting out stores and, 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 and buying, you know, uh, buying fit out and equipment. So it was, it was really hectic, you know, Hiring 200 people in the space of, I don't know, like a year, not, uh, less than a year.
0: Why do you think it did so well? Why was it so well received?
1: It was lots of things. I mean, it was a big fight with the food authorities. Um, Nobody really gave licenses for cheese rooms. Nobody understood what a cheese room was. Um, I had a really funny incident where the the food control guys came in and they they actually didn't understand why we needed to have cheese in a room where people could walk in and, and sort of spread bacteria on all this cheese in the room. And I tried to explain to them that cheese is aged. You have affineurs for cheese, you know, fromages, aged cheese, but they were not having it. So when we opened the cheese room, we actually had to close it at least four times in the first month because they come and say, close this thing down. So there were lots of things that we did were first okay. in the UAE. We had the cheese room. Uh, we had a grocery come restaurant, which at the time, there was nobody else doing what we were doing. Dean and De Luca had failed. They'd opened it in somewhere in Dubai and it failed. And they never really did very well with it. Baker and Spice had opened; they were doing okay. So there was there was like very few examples of what we were doing, particularly the scale we were doing it at.
0: But the, so the Dean Deluca is interesting because they were uh, they're a global brand. Yeah. You'd think they'd have the brand prowess behind them to be able to succeed. Why did they fail? Do you think? I,
1: I, th- I think the the desire to actually go and fight with the authorities in those days okay. was low. Uh, people because Al they're a big group, you know they have lots of brands. Uh, you know to go and devote energies and, and resources to do something for a new and, and to fight that, you have to have a real kind of, you know, gotta got have like skin in the game. And so I had to fight with these guys and most of these things happened because there was a big fight. We had to go in, I mean, even wooden shells was a problem. Why? I had to prove that the wooden shells wouldn't get infected okay. and they wouldn't have insects in them and they wouldn't get termites and they wouldn't go and infest uh, the product. So that in Abu Dhabi, was a, even, that was also another challenge. And uh, then we had issues with the floor cracked slightly. Then they were talking about, you know, whether this disinfectant is not going to get into the cracks. Like ev- everything was... The things was you wouldn't
0: even think of.
1: Things you wouldn't even think of. And things that you normally, when you open a place somewhere in, in the West or outside the Middle East, you know, you, you kind of assume that it would not be a challenge.
0: I'm a little bit shocked that they take the standards so seriously.
1: Yeah, it's actually very much textbook. So, okay. so you read something in a textbook and when you apply it, quite often the application uh, has to be practical. Um, and uh, you know, converting the, you know, assessing the practicality of advice along with the hygiene, that sometimes is missing. But I think they've improved hugely in the last three to five years okay yeah
0: so you start off in Abu Dhabi then moved to Dubai where how many locations did you have by so we
1: opened five locations in three years okay. um, and it was really quick and all the stores were doing really really well we had one slightly underperforming store in Khalidia we lost our parking there okay. but other than that all the stores were doing relatively well um, we you know we, we didn't see any any sort of like-for-like declines in any of the business until sort of three years ago when the market started to hit a little bit of a patchy period or a bumpy period.
0: But after you guys um, started expanding, the market started to become a bit more uh, sophisticated and more competitive for you guys.
1: I'll be lying if I said that we weren't impacted. I mean, the competition was, it suddenly got huge. Like overnight people were, we became the benchmark. Like I'd go to meetings and people would say, oh, uh, you know, uh, or I'd go to somebody who would say, yeah, I met this guy yesterday and he said to me he wants to lease a site and he wants to do something just like Jones the Grocer, or whatever, or I'd meet uh, an interior designer, he'd say, yeah, somebody told me to go and visit your site, he wants to do something just like you, so uh, a lot of people try to do what we do in the cafe space, and people neglected the grocery element because it was just hard work, and it it still is hard work, but it makes our business different. Mm
0: -hmm. And over the course of the the period since you first started, the consumers changed as well, technology, is more prevalent mm-hmm. smartphones became more prevalent as well has ha, did that have an impact at all did, did the customer behavior change did you change your business plan in any way to suit so we, we had
1: a lot of problems our, our franchisor who the brand owner in Australia was very slow at adapting technology okay. and at the same time he wasn't keen on us doing it because it was a bit like the sort of orphan child taking over you know the whole the whole pro and in fact we were the orphan child in a way because we were neglected he didn't he didn't provide us with support. There was a lot of challenges with getting support from him because we grew bigger than him. We grew quicker than him, mm-hmm. and he kind of couldn't support us. So, so one of the things we couldn't do is get our own Facebook page. We couldn't. We couldn't do many things because he just wouldn't let us. Um, and he wanted to control everything. That was his personality, which you know can be good in business, can be bad. But quite often, when you want to let a business grow, you've got to let certain things. You know. Um, and we ended up in this crazy situation where everybody around us were developing apps and websites and uh, doing Talabat and Uber Eats and all this stuff, and we were well behind the curve mm-hmm. because we w- didn't have a decent website. So to cut a very long story short, we get ended up in a situation where we tried to buy this guy out in Australia, uh, and we struggled. We couldn't find a way of doing it. We found out that he was actually looking for to raise money. So we ended up in this situation where... People were calling us saying, do you know you're up for sale? I said, no, I'm not up for sale. And they'd say, oh, well, somebody's selling Jones the Gross. And I'd find out that it was, it was the founder or, or, or the owner at the time trying to raise money mm. um, as to sort of as investment into his IP or the brand. And so we waited, waited, waited. In the end, he did actually sell the business, uh, but he, only, he retained a majority or at least ma- maintained control.
0: Okay. How did that affect you here?
1: Yeah, terribly, actually. He, he got into a situation where he suddenly had money uh and now he decided he wanted to buy us but forcibly okay so there was attrition uh, attrition in the trench warfare sense he'd send us legal letters saying you're in breach of this you're in breach of that and i'd sort of write back to him and say listen buddy you haven't provided us the stuff either we perform and and do well and pay you the royalties we're paying you or we just change the name to you need the grocer (laughs) and so we went through this whole exercise and we got letters from all the big law firms uh and i just kept ignoring them i got 20, 30 letters, I got legal proceeding notices, all kinds of things. And in the end, the private equity people who invested into him realized that this was going on. They actually didn't know. They stepped in um, and they they put a stop to it.
0: Were the customers aware at the time of of these struggles?
1: Actually, no, the customers weren't completely aware, but we actually stopped growing. We didn't put out a lot of locations, which in a way was fortuitous because actually the market grew very too fast and a lot of people put out loads of branches and you can see what's going on now in the market. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't know that at the time, obviously. But um, a lot of my staff knew. Um, so we had people like Tom from Tom and Serge. We had the guys from Bistro. All these guys worked for me. Ah. Every single, I'm telling you, all <laughs> the cafe people <laughs> worked for me. So they all realized we were just sitting around twiddling our thumbs and we were getting inquiries for the real estate, people wanting to invest in us and we just didn't want to do anything because i wanted to, this cloud sitting above my head to to go away
0: that's interesting
1: uh, and in that in that process uh they all they all, they all flew away which is kind of nice to have good alumni uh and they set up their own businesses uh to fill the void in a way
0: so when the these legal problems did finish what did you do
1: um we so so legal problems f- didn't really finish what what happened was uh he ended up in litigation with the investor uh, at the higher level, at the top level, and they just carried on. This went on from 2012 to 2016, oh um, because they, they realized they'd perhaps made a mistake, or between, there was you know, obviously some challenges, the similar challenges to what we had, actually, in a way. Um, and that took so long to sort out that we were just sitting around twiddling our thumbs, waiting, um, and in, in that period, the market started to sort of take its dip Um, and we were in this crazy position where we initially thought we'd get bought out by these people because I think part of the transaction between them was they wanted to buy us out. So I just kind of sat around waiting to get something to happen. Uh, And in that process, a lot of staff stayed on with us because we had to keep paying more salaries, adding more cost. Because I didn't want to lose people because the idea was they'd buy us and keep the team and then grow the business in the region or something. So we kind of stayed around. And then in 16, they came around and said, listen, we've got no money. We've spent all our money on legal, blah, 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 whatever. And actually, um, you know, we, we, we're going to figure out what to do next. So actually everything came to a standstill in 16. So we went back to them and said, we want to buy. We'd mm-hmm. like to buy. And you did? So, so we did, and they took a minority stake in us. Okay. So we had a kind of a two-way transaction. So
0: you went from having your locations in the UAE to what, after you bought them? Yeah, up.
1: so we now own the global IP. Okay. Uh, all, all the stores globally, um, the legacy stores, as you call them, that existed prior to us um, acquiring the IP, ended up um, being part of our portfolio. Mm-hmm. Not the asset, just the IP itself, so the royalties, and the royalty stream. Um, and we have now, you know, we're building stores, um, essentially through the franchise mechanism.
0: So where, where are you expanding to then? Uh,
1: so yeah, it's been quite a journey. So, uh, obviously as you know, we've opened stores in Dubai and we're opening two more in India at the airports, um, Bangalore and Hyderabad. We've got, um, 15 locations signed in Saudi Arabia. We got five signed in Egypt. Um, and we're, we're in sort of talks for a couple of, we've got one opening on the Palm as well, which is going to be really exciting right on the beach.
0: Just to interject here, needless to say, these plans have been postponed. While construction continues in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, these restaurants are unlikely to be opened before the end of the year. So I imagine for a place like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jones the Grocer is is new, it's exciting. But um, here, you've been around for pretty much a decade. Yeah. How have you managed to keep the brand relevant?
1: So I think one one of the things is that we've tried very hard to stay focused on what we stand for. Um, it's really hard not to compete in the restaurant space because everybody's a restaurant, but we've tried to remain more than a restaurant. We've tried to offer more than being a restaurant. Um, it's very hard to compete on a, you know, on a spaghetti bolognese or a burger or whatever it is because everybody's selling burgers. So mm-hmm. we, we've tried to keep the business in experiential try to keep people interested through cooking classes, through all the things that we do, always have done from day one, and really focus on our points of difference, uh, which are very experiential. And I think that's what set us apart, and people still rem- you know, remember us for that. Uh, people, you know, there are many restaurants that come and go, but people always think, ah, oh, Jones the Grocer, yeah, sure, let's go there. And I think that, that sort of top of mind um, thought is because I think we've always focused on what we've always done well, which is you know have be a gourmet retailer, have good cheese, uh, do the classes, bake up everything fresh, make everything fresh in store on the day, and use ingredients that we sell uh, on our menu. Mm. So trying to keep all those things alive.
0: There's almost a sense of nostalgia, because I remember I did a cooking class. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah. <laughs> in the Almanar one. It was with um, Theo. Theo. Theo, yeah, that's the Italian. Theo Randall, yeah. That's the one. Mm-hmm. I still have the book, the recipe book, Yeah. <laughs> but so it is when, I w- um, mm. when I saw it in Dubai mall, I was like, Oh, Jones. Cause I, I don't live um, close enough to Manara to, to drive all the way out there. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, when you see it in Dubai mall, you think, there's a sense of nostalgia definitely attached yeah. to it.
1: So yeah, so we, we, we continue, I mean, we haven't done as many celebrity events as we used to. Um, partly because it's now like, seems to be the age of YouTube and things like that. And we kind of keep thinking about doing another event with celebrity chefs, but we've kind of not done it because it's a bit confusing how the markets change so quickly that is it, are, are these chefs still relevant? You know, are you better off going to like a big bake-off winner or, you know, some sort of YouTube chef? So it, actually the market's changed so much since you did that class that it's been complicated trying to figure out what exactly is the right thing to do. From those things, yeah. from, those from that perspective. So
0: how do you traverse that? And how, do you um, have an app now? Do you, have you changed the website now since you have...
1: Yeah, so we've. So the website's actually been done once, but we're redeve- redeveloping it again. Uh, on the social, I mean, on Instagram, I think we're very active. Quite a nice uh, feed, uh, at least improved a lot in the last six months to a year.
0: Are you on any of the food delivery apps?
1: All of them now, okay. yeah, we're on all of them now. Um, and Was then that an
0: easy choice to make?
1: So it, it, it it's it's a footprint, you know, you've got to have the footprint now. You've got to make it easy for people. It's all about convenience uh, and letting people uh, do things quickly and easily. And having it on all the apps only results in an increase in footprint. And it makes your assets sweat.
0: So th- it increases <coughs> footprint, but do you get a substantial amount of orders every day? Is it worth being on there?
1: I, I think so. Okay. I think I think it's important to be on there because at the end of the day, a, a customer, whether he comes into your business or doesn't come into business, is a, a customer. It's just the cost of acquisition has gone up. You know, it's the cost of acquisition is to 20, 25 percent, whatever people pay to these to these delivery providers.
0: How has the customer changed for you guys in terms of how they find you, um, how they uh, connect with mm-hmm. you, how they interact with you? I mean, back when you started, Instagram wasn't a thing. Uh, so, how have these channels changed for you?
1: I think they changed incredibly Uh, like for example in in dubai because uh, you know the market is so saturated and everybody's distracted people are distracted by their social feeds and sometimes you're not top of mind Um, so i think there has been an impact on footfall Um, i think people uh, and particularly the way this country works or this this region works with the visas and three-year contracts or two-year contracts uh, the market changes people who knew you four years ago or three years ago may not be the people yeah. that know you today And that market keeps shrinking or to keep talking to them And I think the only way to do that is through social uh, the days of having uh, you know people living here five years six years And you becoming a destination and being kind of becoming an institution or a culture uh, and uh, maintaining that culture are b- very difficult first five years of trading it was easy for us to maintain the culture because there seemed to be consistency of people and population but there seems to be a lot more uh, turnover now and so we almost you've got to keep reinforcing your brand your values uh, your mission what you want to do uh, all the time uh, because there's just always new people coming into this market
0: and how do you translate that across the different geographies you're going into Saudi now. Do you have mm. to tailor it specifically to the Saudi market? Absolutely.
1: So one of the exercises we did last, um, last over the last three months, particularly over summer, is trying to understand um, areas of the business that need, um, that, that, that need strengthening to make sure that they translate to a new market successfully. Um, and one of the exercises we, we, we did out of this was to understand where the gaps are in our manning. Uh, and in our, in our senior team. And out of that exercise, we determined that we need, for example, a training manager, um, and we need a brand director, or a very strong brand custodian. And these two people, along with a couple of other people we want to hire, would, would try and manage the consistency of the brand in the short term, medium term, and long term. Uh, and of course, we ha- we've got a franchise manager, which was an inter- in- internal position that we brought in. We've strengthened our operations manual uh, make it easier for people to follow and understand, documented all our processes um, so we can make sure that anybody who opens a Jones store can really understand, uh, you know, the way we do business and there's a way to monitor uh, it and then uh, a compliance process. I think we just focused on really building our culture. Uh, I mean, that's the one thing we're trying to do really hard is to is to kind of have a team culture that, that... Sticks. Um, And one of the challenges we've had as we've grown and then stopped and then grown again is that it's very hard to to maintain culture uh, in a business. And now that we're growing, one of the things we really want to do is to really protect the culture of the business and hire people and bring people in the business who can fit into the business or at least understand the business and then, and then fit in.
0: How do, you, how do you maintain that culture and translate it across all the different... I think training. Uh,
1: yeah. Training uh, is very, very important. Uh, the brand purpose, you know, what is our purpose? Why are we here? I mean, it's no secret that I think the top 20 companies, uh, most valuable companies in the world, uh, their employees in, in surveys are very clear about the brand purpose, why they exist. Uh, and I think our goal is, is I don't, I'm, I'm not going to say we're going to be in the top 20 companies in the world, maybe we'll get close. But our goal is to get all our employees to be aligned with our brand purpose. And I think that's all part of building culture.
0: Shortly after the interview I did with Unib at the end of February, the UAE went into lockdown. At one point, restaurants completely shut their doors and could only accept delivery orders. Things are slowly starting to open up, but restaurants are limited to a 30% dining capacity. Um, thank you once again for doing an interview with me.
1: Uh, you're welcome. Yes.
0: Um, so I want to get a sense of, of what's been happening and how you guys have responded to the pandemic. When we did the interview, there were only a handful of cases and the thought of going into lockdown was inconceivable. How quickly did that change for you guys?
1: I mean, to be honest, I was, I was actually in London um, early March and I got the sense while I was there that this thing was going to get really, really quite awful. And when I came back from London, I actually told, got the team together and told them, you know, this is going to get really worse. We've got to do something. Um, and there was a degree of scepticism, but we, we kind of started a small amount of planning around then um, as to what we would do. If this would get worse, but to be honest, in our business, you know, we don't have lots of cash reserves. You know, we're, food businesses tend to generally operate—I mean, global yardstick—16 days cash. Um, so it's quite hard in this environment to think about what to do when you're not like you know some of these big companies with access to lots of liquidity and cash and bank bank lending lines and collateral to put forward. So I mean our solutions are fairly limited and we sort of came up with a plan that if this does go ahead, um we would, you know, immediately look at how to handle the biggest cost, which is landlords and staff. Um we couldn't quite work out what other solutions we had up our sleeve. Um we couldn't survive um because these are two largest items on our on our profit and loss. Um and then obviously the next item was, you know, how what do we do about revenue? You know, how do how do we shoulder and bolster revenue? Those are the three things. Um but staff, landlords um and uh, revenue were the three big areas that we sort of chose to focus on and then when the government started to announce um measures over here to you know, try and control things at an early stage we we sort of knew what was coming but it was fairly quick particularly with our franchise business we, we were lucky that our company owned stores are not really in malls you know big malls uh, or public places. Um, and as soon as these got hit, our franchise revenue basically dropped from almost 30, 40 percent or 25 percent of revenue to zero overnight.
0: How did you tackle the employee side of things?
1: So I mean, this was quite quick. So immediately we lost um, what was a big chunk of revenue. I mean, that that section of the business employs, you know, it doesn't employ that many people, but it supports our head office in a sense, because obviously we've got to support the franchise business. So our cost structure is geared towards supporting franchise as it was a growing part of our business. While our company-owned stores were like a training ground, you know, they 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 sort of do best practice across our franchise network. So you might you can see like our company-owned stores as, as a training ground um, for the franchise business, and therefore there's a slightly high cost associated with it. So as soon as that happened, we had to take a call on, on the company-owned business what to do next. And just answering your question very directly. Um, They didn't seem to be much choice other than going very transparently to employees fairly early on, actually, before anybody else really did anything about it. Um, I think it was around uh, the 17th or 18th of March, maybe a bit later. uh, We wrote to all employees. I wrote to each employee personally, telling them that, listen, if we're going to make through, if we are going to get through this, um, we have to we have to be transparent and we are in danger of running out of cash. Um, particularly because uh, already it seems revenue has, has, has come down at company-owned stores. Because I think around that time, they'd already started implementing some of the um, social distancing here. So our company-owned stores, you know, we'd seeing less and less people dining in. Um, in fact, in some locations like Dubai, they'd stopped it already. Abu Dhabi, they were a bit slower. So we started looking at doing WhatsApp, click and collect. And then it started picking up a little bit. But revenues had already declined 30 to 40% in our company-owned stores at this point. So I wrote to the staff and I told them, listen, guys, it's a tough thing. We we may run out of cash. You know, I'd like to be, you know, it's a very difficult message for me to write um, because we've never done this in 12 years. And I I, I really propose that we all voluntarily go on pay cuts. And so we propose that senior management, including myself, um, cut 50 percent off the wages, mid-level to to higher management, 40, 45 percent. Um, and junior level 35 percent. I think there was only two people who at first didn't understand completely how serious this was and I had a one-on-one with them and I explained to them this was really serious Um, and uh, nearly everyone came on board and I did a a town hall with all the senior staff at the office and we also did a zoom call with all the employees across every store one by one and explained to them why this was needed and and then we got 100% buy-in on this.
0: How does this compare to what you went through previously.
1: So it's quite interesting you ask that question because I've been, I've been, you know, mulling over this for the last two or three weeks. You know, at that time when I was setting this up, I had a fairly tunnel vision approach to this that, that, I was going to get through this somehow. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get over these troubles, and it's really not a problem. And I was trying to figure out whether this mindset that I have now is anything close to that. And it's only I'm only saying that because I'm actually I've not been at least inwardly very stressed, and I'm not sure why. And the more I distill it down, I think it's because I feel like I'm in the same um, position as millions of other people around the world, and it doesn't feel like I'm being singled out, you know, as someone who's either performed badly or Done something wrong or made bad decisions, it kind of feels like, listen, it doesn't really matter what happens down the line. What I need to focus on now, because everybody's in the same boat, what I need to focus on now is what I can do now to ameliorate um, things in my own business, what I can influence directly. I'm kind of tunnel visioned from that perspective. I'm not really thinking about the future. I've just written to all the landlords. I've said, listen, I, I'm not going to clear your checks. So you've got to help us um we paid you 16 million at least in the case of some landlords you know 16 million in the last 10 years of trading one landlord 13 million one landlord 15 million other one 12 and a half million i just said to him listen these are the numbers we paid you this money over the last 10 years we can't afford to pay you now
0: what was their response when you did uh, email
1: them i mean I, again i wrote them a very similar letter, letter i wrote to the employees saying listen it's a very difficult email to write a message or letter to write and you know i i honestly can't won't survive this if you guys don't waive the rent for at least the until at least the end of the year or and i thought it was a very fair thing to ask is we just pay you on turnover rent um because you know if we make money you benefit if we don't make money both of us are where we were um and i said listen if you make a hundred dollars you I will pay you ten percent or eight percent whatever's in our in our lease the clause that exists already uh we'll pay you that um and no one responded to date. Only all they've said is that they will um, not present the checks to the bank, which essentially means that they'll defer this. Um, but you know that means nothing because if they want to present the checks in October, they're not going to clear. Are
0: you selling primarily through your own website, or are you on the other platforms?
1: So you know we've gone to ecom, um, and I've been building that business up over the last two or three weeks. You know our ecom. was always very small. Um, And it's already in relative terms, we've clawed back. We're about 45% of normal revenues now without franchise. So if franchise was 30%, we lost 70, we're down to 70%. Then we came down to almost 25% of steady state revenues. Now we're back up to around 35 to 45% of steady state revenues. So most of that's come from e-com, from grocery sales. So
0: there's been a lot of uh, debate on social media, and with regards to the UAE restaurants, and a kind of backlash against these aggregators and the high commission rates that they charge.
1: So, the, one of the first things our CFO did um, was, you know, tried made a real concentrated effort to, one, get us completely on all the all the aggregators, uh, which we never were, um, and our menu was never really fully listed everywhere properly with photographs and moderators. And, you know, like where you can add like chips and you can add like a drink as a combination. So we did all of this stuff very early on in, in mid-March, early March, So corrected our presence on the platforms um, and tried to push it through and negotiate rates with them. Uh, we didn't really get very far with the rate negotiation, but we managed to get ourselves listed more efficiently everywhere, like the talabat. Um, and our business did go up from, three percent of revenue which is very low um, to like maybe 12 percent of revenue Um, so yeah we managed to more than double the revenue on those sites but obviously as you you say commissions are really really high so we tried to then migrate um we have in the last 10 days might tried to set up our own um delivery channels through chat food chat foods a monthly subscription service so you can use the app on your on your platform on your website People can order and then you can use a last mile provider to deliver the goods. So we managed to cut the commissions to almost 12 percent, um, you know, in total across both chat food or less even and, and the delivery providers. But the issue now is that we just can't compete with marketing with the aggregators because, you know, they're spending two dollars a click on Google and then they've got these fancy apps and, you know, you've obviously got a bit of a herd mentality uh, where everybody is on these apps and therefore it's easier so we've not yet been able to migrate a lot of people through, but we're working really hard on social to do that. Um, but where our growth has come from is really groceries. And our, our website's been, you know, we've really revamped it, worked really hard on the, on, on the econ part, uh, grocery sales, recipe box sales. We're also doing recipe boxes now, so you can cook at home. You, you, some of the dishes that we actually sell in the restaurant. Those sales have gone up from almost zero um, to 10 times, 20 times, you know, eight, 10,000 dirhams a day, um, if not more, and growing every day at 10, 15% on, online. So that's, that's been a real interesting challenge. Um, and we're trying to work on other ways of SEO optimization. Uh, people are buying a lot of cheese online. I've been doing live Instagram cheese classes. I've been mean, running cheese board classes with my son Last night I did a Shakutri class. It's on our Instagram live at the moment. And so we're doing all kinds of things and we really v- ra- ramped up our social and we've seen fairly good social growth, good engagement on social and conversions as well. So that's, that's kind of what we've been doing behind the scenes.
0: How does uh, a company like yours retain its brand relevancy when it can't physically really be out there and, and have that face-to-face contact with customers?
1: I think for us, um, we've been working very hard on the customer experience on social, because that's your face, and concurrently on the way we deliver our goods, the way we send out deliveries. Every single bag that goes out to a customer has a personal message from the manager um, saying thank you or you know, some, some quirky message to, to make them add more personality to. Um, our social media has done that. And if you see some of the videos and the content going out, you know, trying to communicate the fact that what we sell on our grocery shelves is not in your local supermarket. Um, it's small batch produced, it's handmade, um, getting the message across on our food that everything is made, you know, fresh on the day, the bread is baked that morning. You know, all that messaging is coming through both in home delivery, trying to come through on social. Um, and, and of course I've done a lot of videos talking to customers on social so we're just trying to get that message across in every way possible in in this current environment
0: thanks to you need for giving us this time on both occasions and thanks to you for listening you can listen to all of our podcasts on wamda.com or through your podcast provider